everyone, welcome to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. Yes, you heard that right. Dispatches from the Front. <laughs> that podcast that Random Chatter used to do. We're, we're, we're back. Uh, this is episode number 17. We're not going to reset or anything. This We're, gonna, we're, we're continuing on. Uh, but we are going to do something a little bit different than what we plan to do because, well... Sometimes when you wait long enough, you just have to change plans. Uh, I'm Tim. Tom is with me. How are you this morning, Tom? I'm still blowing all the dust off of myself from the last <laughs> episode we did. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a while. Um, I, between uh, work and travel and reserve duty and babies and holidays and I, I don't know what else, Tom. What, what else has happened? I like your train of excuses so far, so I'm I'm right aboard that tram. I'm sure we can think of some <laughs> other ones. Um, I think the the funny thing was Tim is the responsible one and would come up online and suggest a recording and some dates and stuff, and then I would be the the wheel that would fall off the car and, <laughs> and cause us to to have to adjust. But I will say. That the delay gave us a really good opportunity to talk 1917 because when we – going into the the holiday season, I really didn't know about this movie. I think that – I forget the first time I saw the trailer, but it was sometime in December and I got mm-hmm. really excited about it. Had no idea that it was on the horizon and getting to kind of restart with 1917 I think is a good opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's exactly it. We are, uh, we're not going to do Beneath Hill 60 this episode, uh, but we are going to come back to it next episode. We'll, so we'll kind of have back-to-back World War I movies. Um, and I think we mentioned in the, in the last episode, if you remember, well, last year, uh, <laughs> quite literally, um, there really aren't a lot of World War I movies out there. I think I maybe have a couple on my DVR that I happen to catch on, like, TCM or something. Um but there really aren't a lot out there. And, uh, but so this was great to do 1917. It made sense for us. It's in the theaters. It has a ton of awards hype and, uh, it's, it's, it's just really doing well and everyone's been reviewing it well. So, um, yeah, yeah. So what, uh, just kind of real quick, Tom, let's catch people up on life. What, what have you been up to? I mean, aside from the litany of excuses that you and I have for not recording, you call them excuses. I call it a very well executed plan that we definitely <laughs> had put together from the very beginning. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. So yes. uh, we get people missing us and asking about us, definitely not forgetting about us. And and then here we go with a, an excellent episode. I I wish I could say I've been up to like amazingly exciting things, but it's been sort of standard. If you've got kids, and then you know exactly how – uh, my last month or so went, or my daughter's uh, now 18, 19 months old. So this was mm-hmm. the first Christmas that she sort of got that stuff is kind of new and then immediately lost interest in it and wanted to play with the boxes. So December was a fun, kind of crazy busy time. Uh, my reserve unit's in a state of flux with personnel going out and uh, sort of an internal shuffle in positions and, and whatnot, new people coming in. So that's been busy. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to get back to it with this. Good. What about you? Uh, I'll tell you, the last uh, quarter of last year was just kind of nuts, um, particularly work-wise. It had a ton of travel all over the U.S. Uh, and also ended up uh, being in Germany for a week. Went to Berlin, uh, which was a very different experience from Munich. And um, 
a lot of the stuff in Berlin, uh, both kind of, I guess, naturally, but also even more so because the week that we were there was the uh, 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall. Oh, wow. So, yes, there's a lot of stuff uh, in the city. They had little like pop-up events um, and like museum-ish kind of displays all around the city on it. Uh, I went to, what got us out there was my my wife had a, a, a conference that she was going to. So that's what initially got us out there. She was in that for three days. So over the course of those first three days, I just kind of went around and did my thing. Um, explored the city a little bit, went to the um, uh, the German History Museum, which covers everything from like, you know, pre-medieval times uh, up, up to present. And, um, you know, obviously they have a, a, a big part on there in uh, to do with World War II and then the occupation and, 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 and the wall and all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, really, really some, some really interesting stuff. Some very interesting stuff. Obviously, they had a lot there on World War One as well, because um, Germans can't stay in their borders. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad that they cover that stuff because there's a, uh, a. I could easily picture it going the other way. There's a Family Guy clip from an early episode where Stewie and Brian are on a, a bus tour in Germany, and uh, they kind of skip over like the 1930s and 40s. And <laughs> Brian goes like, "Well, yeah, well, what about all the stuff that happened there?" And the tour guy gets real angry real quick. He's like, "Everybody was on vacation. It was all great." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that they um. They are very self-aware. They are very self-aware of of the mistakes that were made and what went on and and that kind of stuff. And and they do it without laying blame. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of of external factors uh, involved in both wars, and and they they acknowledge those external factors, but they also take ownership to to the stuff that that they as a country. Um, and as a people were responsible for. So um, it, it, it is good to see. I mean, they were very, very fair and accurate portrayals of, of things, um, at least from, from, you know, from my perspective. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was good. It's been a, it's been a week there. Um, it's really, really great. I, I mean, obviously the vast majority of the stuff there is Cold War stuff. Uh, they have an incredible spy museum, you know, that the spy museum that's in DC, I, Mm-hmm. is a, a, an amazing museum if, if no one's ever been uh you should absolutely go i mean going to dc is a great trip tons of museums and that kind of stuff and this spy museum is fantastic the spy museum in Ber- in berlin i think might actually even be a little bit better wow um, that's high praise yeah it's 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 bigger it's probably twice as big um and there's there's a lot there i mean they start with the history of of spycraft and then you know moving forward through time obviously they spend a ton of time on the cold war and everything there is very very grounded uh in terms of like this is the stuff that happened right here in this city and you know just really cool stuff and of course they have the ubiquitous uh uh james bond uh uh section because <laughs> i i mean you you have to acknowledge that and then uh you know and then they get up into like you know current current spycraft and, and such and espionage and and uh, cyber stuff and, and that kind of thing. So how was the gift shop? I imagine that the museum dumps you straight into the gift shop at of course. Like right at the end of the ride. Of course so it does. <laughs> we probably, okay. So I will admit because the museum was kind of on our walk from, um, our hotel to the part of Berlin that we spent the most amount of time in, 
we walked by that spy museum several times. Um, we, the first time that we were in the gift shop, which was after our tour of the museum, we were probably in that gift shop for easily 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, and we actually went That's back awesome into that. that gift shop again later. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the stuff that was in there was really cool. I, I, you know, some of it's like really kitschy stuff or, or, you know, Hey, here's a pencil, uh, or an eraser that has the logo, but there was also some really neat stuff in there. Some fantastic books and, and stuff. Um, a lot of things were available in English. There were some things only available in, in, in German, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Good, good array of things. So. Very but nice. yeah, it's, you know, we had that trip and then, uh, yeah, just a bunch of work trips. And then of course the holidays, I had a sinus infection somewhere in one of my trips, which That's made lovely. that rather miserable, especially flying. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back. I was, I was kind of on a relative hiatus from all the shows that I'm on. Uh, it was kind of a hit and miss type of a thing if I would make it or not. And there were even some nights that like, yeah, I'm home, but I just got back two days ago and I'm leaving tomorrow. So yeah. I'm not going to record. <laughs> yeah. My, my wife wanted to actually see me. So you know, <laughs> go figure. I shared this with you before, but uh, it, it's a funny story and, and may cause some of the listeners to go out and pick this up themselves. There's a game uh, based on like blockbuster video that, you can find it at Target or Walmart. I picked it up on a whim because uh, we were having some family over and needed a party game. And it you'll be able to tell exactly what it is because it is packaged in what looks like an old Blockbuster VHS uh, box. The I had never played the game, never heard of it, but thought it looked kind of funny. Got it. We were playing it with family, and the I won't go through all the details of the game. It is very good and a lot of fun if you like movies, which you probably do if you're listening to, to this podcast. But the first step of the game is a showdown between one person from each team. And the winner of the show, showdown, that team gets sort of an advantage going into the, the round of the game. They get to control things, so to speak. But it the way it works is sort of like Family Feud style. You flip over a card, and the card has a category of movies. So it might mm -hmm. be like movies with a dog in it. And you, the, the goal is each person has a real short period of time to say a movie from that category, and it kicks it to the other person. And you go back and forth, and if the clock runs out on you, or say you, you give a wrong movie for the category. So it's a movies with dogs and you say, I don't know, Jurassic Park. And that's clearly wrong. The other team wins and they get mm -hmm. the advantage. So I'm playing my brother-in-law's against me in the showdown. And he's got a pretty deep movie knowledge. But the card gets flipped over and it's war movies. And it was like that scene in The Grinch where his smile just like creep, you know, creeps across his face. My brother puts his head in his hands. <laughs> And he goes, well, we're just going to see how long we can last here. <laughs> he, he lasted for a little while. And then we got kind of to, to deeper. I, I did go through, I think, every movie that we've covered on the podcast and then some. Nice. But I would have like my movie or my, my first choice plus like four other choices as backups already in my mind. And we hit the point. <laughs> I think I said Bridge Over the River Kwai. And he was like <laughs> – to himself he's like is that even a war movie i don't even know I, but i can't challenge <laughs> <laughs> so if you're looking for a good game that was that that's what sold me on it uh, nice. out of the gate but yeah it was funny yeah i'll have to check that out I'll have to, that, that sounds like a lot of fun and and i mean i'm probably the 
certainly the biggest cinephile, I think, in the house, but my wife is also big on movies, and I think I've mentioned she teaches a film class, um, usually at least every other semester and such, so, you know, she's she's got a lot of that stuff in her head, too. So it, it, it depending on the genre, it could be a challenge. Well, you guys will have to split up. You can't be on the same team. That's too right. much. <laughs> <laughs> you just destroy everyone. Exactly. It'd be pretty much like, you know, you in a Star Wars trivia contest with your family. <laughs> they, they might as well not even show up. That's why we don't own Star Wars Trivial Pursuit. That The game won't come into our house, I don't think. <laughs> uh, understandably so. No one else would get a turn. Uh, or you'd have to create a house rule of like, you know, Tom can't go any more than three answers. He, you get one third of the clue. <laughs> uh, the clue is what is. <laughs> And you'll still get at least half of those right. Uh, Damn, how do you get that? (laughs) All right, folks. Um, So we we have, across most of our shows, uh, changed up our uh, uh, format of our intro and outro a little bit. So we've brought, we've front-loaded some of that stuff. So I'll just hit that quick before we get into the meat of the show. Uh, We certainly appreciate your feedback. You can get us a number of ways. Shoot us an email to dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can find us over on Twitter at Random Chatter. You can also find uh, Tom and I there. Tom, where can we find you on Twitter? I am at Thomas L. Harper. That's L as in Larry. God, that's still so boring. I know. Uh, you, can fi- <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Qui-Gon Tim. That is Tim with two M's. Uh, you can, of course, find all of our shows over at randomchatter.com. And we definitely appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us. Uh, you can leave reviews over uh, wherever it is that you find your podcast. Please tell your friends, family members, coworkers, random strangers about us. Uh, you can donate financially over at randomchatter.com slash Patreon. Um, it, that starts with a dollar a month. And uh, we are officially, one of our, our big accomplishments as a network last year uh, is that uh, we are officially an IRS nonprofit organization. Um we are not a charitable organization, so it's not tax deductible. I'm, I'm sorry to say, um, <laughs> but we are nonprofit, so that means that we are no longer having to pay taxes on people's donations, which was absolutely silly. So that means that every dollar, every donation that comes to us, uh, goes to the network and the things that we do. So that's a wonderful thing. Um, you can uh, uh, continue the discussion over in our Discord community, ramchatter.com/discord. Uh, we do have public channels there, uh, which include our lobby and all of our show channels, which includes dispatches. Um, so if you have any questions, comments, um, any other discussion on, on uh, uh, things that Tom and I talk about here on the show, you can uh, jump into Discord there and, and talk about it. Uh, or you can unlock basically the full Discord experience uh, by any Patreon donation. Um, we also have a tea Public store. Um, we don't have the Dispatches logo up there yet because we have to make some changes to it because I think our logo still has Band of Brothers on it. So we, we do have to change that up a little bit. Um, but uh, we have the Random Chatter uh, Show logo up there. We have Echo Base. We have uh, DC Talk. We have uh, Movie Chatter we just put up last week. We have Guardians of the MCU. And just yesterday I put up uh, the show logo for the Tight Beam, which is our Expanse show. I have, all right, I'm sorry, I have one more story. <laughs> I'll allow it. We're, we're 16 minutes into this show and it's all been stories. Um, one of my trips ended up being a very, very short notice trip uh, down to uh, uh, Texas, down to Camp Swift, Texas. I got asked to help run a week-long exercise down there. 
um, which had to do, don't know again what people may or may not be familiar with, uh, but this was Homeland Response Force uh, Surf PCST. So uh, Homeland Response Force is uh, largely command and control over these like uh, WMD response teams and, and the CST is kind of does more like monitoring and analysis. The surf P does the actual response so they can work in clandestine environments that are contaminated. Um, <clears throat> they can do search and rescue. They do medical care, decon, um, all that kind of stuff. So the big week long thing, uh, with them down at camp Swift, uh, which is kind of outside of Austin by maybe 45 minutes or so had never been down there before. I I'm pulling in the, the the first day up to the front gate and there's a monument right next to the gate. And I see the the seal on on there for the 10th mountain. This is in Texas. The 10th mountain is in New York <laughs> in Fort Drum, which is like half an hour away from me to get to Fort Drum. And uh, I'm like what in the hell is that all about? So I ended up uh uh the, so the funny thing is my flight down there, I was actually reading a, I had just started a history of the 10th mountain book. That's fun. I hadn't gotten to the part <laughs> on Cam Swift yet. So I did end up flipping through the book. I mean, obviously it's not like there's going to be a spoiler in the book. You're like fact checking the monument. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I flipped through to find out what in the world does the 10th mountain have to do with Cam Swift, Texas. Um, and as it turns out, so during world war two, while they were doing their training, after they had finished the majority of their uh, of their actual mountain and, and alpine training um, up in the Rockies, they went down to Camp Swift to do uh, primarily weapons training. So they were using, um, you know, Browning automatic rifles and other stuff. There's a massive, massive range down there uh, in the, the the back of Camp Swift. So um, they were there for I think less than a year, but that's that's one of their notorieties is, is that that was kind of part of the foundation of um, of the Tenth Mountain. So that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. The, the the funny things we come across. All right, so let's get into 1917. Uh, first of all, as I said, tons and tons of uh, award season attention that this movie has. Tom, could you just kind of give us a rundown of, of just some of the dom- the nominations that this movie has gotten? I think it would be better to go through the what it hasn't been nominated for. <laughs> if it wins, it will have won for like almost every component of the of the movie itself in terms of how it was made. So, best picture was nominated for original music score, best director original screenplay, cinematography, sound mixing, visual effects, production design, sound editing, and makeup and hair. And then BAFTA. And, that, and that's also, for the Academy. That's from the Academy. Uh, so the Oscars. And then BAFTA has also nominated it for a pretty similar set of awards as well. Best film, original music, best British film, visual effects, cinematography, sound, direction, production design, makeup, and hair. So it stands to walk away with a lot of uh, trinkets from the awards. Yeah, yeah and, and a lot of people are saying it's favorited to definitely win Best Picture um, with the Academy. So that's that's a big thing. Tom, do you think that I, I might win um, a personal award for Best Makeup and Hair? I think you could. Definitely the hair. Uh, you're, you're right up there, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, Joker is definitely competition there, but uh, I think be. yours is more magnificent. 
Why, thank you, Tom. That's very nice of you. Nice of you to say. <laughs> uh, so this film uh, was written by Sam Mendes and uh, Christy Wilson-Carnes. This is actually the first uh, uh, full writing credit that Sam Mendes has ever had. And Christy Wilson-Carnes, um, she also actually doesn't have a real deep filmography, which is interesting considering the level of writing she's been doing. Uh, her biggest thing prior to this has been Penny Dreadful. She's written many of those. And I assume that this is where her and Sam Mendes first started working together because he also directed a lot of the Penny Dreadful episodes, um, which is what, Showtime? I think. Yeah, I can't, I've seen some of the episodes. I can't recall what uh, yeah. what it's on. Yeah. And their first series is done. And I think they just announced a second series, which is a, a time jump. So they're doing all different actors and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, this film was also directed by Sam Mendes, who is known for a lot of things. Um, he's certainly known and, and very much uh, uh, loved in the James Bond uh, community. Uh, he's done Skyfall and Spectre. He did Road to Perdition, uh, Penny Dreadful, as I mentioned, American Beauty, and Jarhead. Tom, and if you can, I, I don't know how much more there is to elaborate on this plot summary. And this is maybe the shortest plot summary I've ever done. Um, you, you want to take us through that? Yeah. So the the core of it, and I think that's sort of the beauty of this movie is it's a simple premise. You've got two young British soldiers during the First World War. They're tasked to send a deliver uh, to to deliver a message, uh, basically acting as couriers to stop an an allied attack against the German army that has been discovered as a trap. Uh, and, and the way it sort of plays out in the film is uh, one of the characters, and we'll get into this, has a brother who's a member of this unit, the 2nd Battalion of the Devonshire Regiment, that's about to uh, conduct this attack. Their, their commanding officer has uh, seen what he thinks is a golden opportunity to strike and, and uh, deliver a hammer blow to the Germans as they fall back, sensing a weak point. And in reality, it's a tactical withdrawal that's meant to bait the British army uh, into stretching, uh, basically stretching past their lines. And uh, the, the fear is that the entire 2nd Battalion there is going to lose their lives as they fall into this trap. And uh, the, one of the character's brothers is a member of that battalion. He's also trying to save his brother's life. Uh, and that's uh, Lance Corporal Blake that we'll talk a little bit more about. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the 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 cast of this, and I really just highlighted, I mean, there's also not a lot of, there actually aren't many speaking roles uh, in this movie, because a lot of the time, is a, a good chunk of the movie is just spent with those two soldiers, as they were kind of going from the British side over through, uh, essentially through no man's land for, for a good part of this, and then um, trying to, to reach uh, the, the British forces that were up on the new line. And... Um, so you you have some folks who are very notable, uh, some significant stars, but we don't see very much of them in the movie, which I kind of like. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the movie is, uh, as you mentioned, Lance Corporal Blake, who's played by Dean Charles Chapman. He's known, uh, I think, f mostly for playing uh, Tom and Baratheon from Game of Thrones, uh, and he's also uh, into the Badlands. And then uh, Lance Corporal Schofeld. Uh, played by George McKay, who actually has kind of a, a decent filmography in terms of volume, 
but not much in there that's notable. There was nothing, looking at his filmography, there's nothing that jumped out to me that said, oh yeah, hey, most of our our audience, or even me, is going to recognize the guy from this show or this movie. I, I don't know if there's anything that jumped out to you, Tom. I no, he has a familiar face, but I couldn't yes. place him from having yeah. seen him anywhere. Uh, so let's see, playing uh, General Aaron Moore, also known as Admiral Akbar, uh, <laughs> is uh, Colin Firth, who I didn't even realize when watching the movie that that was Colin Firth. And so General Aaron Moore is the one who realizes that it is in fact a trap. Um, and he sends these two young lands corporals uh, forward to to deliver that message. I think every one of our shows is, just has this subtone of Star Wars. And that's Star okay. Wars. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> we can all appreciate uh, that. We have Colonel McKenzie, who is the long sought after Colonel through the entire, uh, the entire film, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, probably in his shortest role ever, I think. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, Lieutenant Joseph Blake, uh, who is Lance Corporal Blake's brother, as you mentioned, uh, played by Richard Madden, also from Game of Thrones, uh, uh, the legacy there. So th- that's really the core of this. I, they're, they're, I, you, you have a bunch of ancillary characters, but uh, these were really the, the primary driving forces of this film. Yeah, I think that's one of the nice things about it is you get this real sense of it's like a scaled down version of what Saving Private Ryan was able to do, where even to a a greater degree, your attention is not split between a bunch of different characters that the the focus is on uh, Blake and Schofield. And it's I, I think the best thing about this movie for me was that it's from their perspective. You're not, uh, you don't get these moments like in saving private Ryan with, uh, Captain Miller, where you're getting a lot of exposition where Captain Miller might get some information about the, uh, the overall operation or this or that, that maybe some of the other younger, lower ranking soldiers don't get, uh, that fills you in as an audience member. You're, you're literally a private or a Lance corporal in the British army and you know exactly what they know and nothing more, which yeah, I think is and, really effective for me. And that's an interesting note on the production of this, because I can't think of any moment in the film where the camera leaves the perspective of the main actors. The The camera is constantly yeah. either showing them or showing what they see. It, there is never a cut to something in a place where they aren't there 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 is no b storyline to this it is constantly an a storyline mm-hmm. and that camera perspective like i said the camera is either always on them or seeing what they are seeing yeah. so you you are it, you're basically the third person with these guys yeah and i i for this conflict and for the the sort of plot that they're going through I thought that was as much a character of the story as as anything else, because it would have been easy to add more characters or or say cut between. Uh, you've got Colonel McKenzie with a huge actor playing him. Cut to to them and their preparations and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really ramped up the drama and the the sort of tension as you're going through moment to moment because they literally know 
nothing. They have their mission. They have to kind of memorize where they're supposed to go and whatnot. And that's about it. And you just have to stay along with the ride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say something really controversial, Tom. (laughs) This is a good movie. I liked it. I don't know it is entirely deserving of all the hype it's getting. What makes you say that? I'm just putting that out there. Uh, Definitely production-wise, top-notch movie. Phenomenal production to it. Uh, Best film? Eh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I I think there may have been other films. So just so people know the 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 release of this film, they did a very limited release before the end of the year to have it qualify for mm-hmm. award season. A lot of movies do that, and then they did their wide release after the new year. Yeah, I, I mean it's a good movie. It's not that I didn't like the movie. Uh, the third act actually kind of falls apart for me. And there is something that I kind of view as a, as a bit of a plot hole, and, and we'll get to that when we get to, to that point. I, I did enjoy it, though. I thought it was good. There were a lot of like really intense parts to it. I loved that camera perspective that, that we talked about. Um, I, I thought that was fantastic. I just don't know that, again, very good movie. I just don't know, at least to me, that it's worth all the hype that it's been getting. Some of that hype, I think, is warranted. Some of it, maybe not so much. Yeah, I think where I landed was, and we'll get into this when we shortly get into the plot discussion, but um, Blake's death caught me off guard. Not necessarily surprising me too. for the, the, you know, where the movie was going and the conflict, I, I, you know, it fit, I get it, but it caught me off guard and I left the theater with kind of a downer and I don't think Mendez really cared about giving some uplifting ending. It's not like you walk away from saving private Ryan, just to use that example again, like ready to do a backflip and wave the American flag. Like it's a sad ass ending with, yeah. uh, you know, the mission complete technically, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It, that, so I walked out with, with that sort of feeling hanging over my head. And I guess my measure for a movie as weird as this is, is as I'm watching it, do I have this like sense that I really like, I can't wait to buy it and watch it again and like dive back into it. I mean, I get that with the star Wars movies and stuff like that. And you know, black Hawk down is a good example. Saving private Ryan, where you're like, man, I like I'm watching this. I just want to go back and see it again and pause stuff. I didn't get that with this. I I would like to go back to certain portions and watch Mm -hmm. certain parts again. But, um, it was one of those where you watch it and I, I thought like, I get it. I get the praise that it's getting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that I'll buy it when it comes out. So take that for what it's worth. That doesn't mean it's, you know, not a good movie or, or yeah, no, that I hate it or a good anything, movie. but yeah. Okay. I, I, I think you and I are, are, are kind of on a, on the same page with us. Um, so Tom, get us, uh, get us started here with the, the actual meat of the movie. Where, where do we start off? We start off, which is given the perspective of the film with these two privates, them just like smoking and joking under a tree. They're just sleeping, (laughs) Uh, not doing much of anything. And all of a sudden, uh, Blake gets summoned and and has to grab a buddy because you always have to have a battle buddy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he gets summoned uh, for a mission. And... uh, 
I thought this was a perfect way to just start things because it's you don't get some establishing shot. There's not like this this massive um, view of the the globe and hey the Germans have pushed to this point. Allies have the Allied forces have have uh, pushed to this point or taken these casualties. There's none of that. You literally just start out and it's two soldiers kind of sleeping and hanging out. Yeah. I mean that's that's pretty much where we're at. So yeah, they volunteer. They're they're kind of walking through the, uh, through through. I guess it's really the outskirts of of, of the camp. Uh, a lot of people are doing laundry. That's really the biggest thing that you see. Uh, and, and they're they are clearly talking about a, a shortage of food that they seem to have. Like no one has food. So that that is kind of a, a big thing there. And actually, the 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 day that this movie starts. Uh, the the actual day and date that it starts, uh, coincidentally, is the day that uh, the United States joined the war. And I think that was more of the declaration part of it. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't ac- actually actively have uh, boots on the ground uh, at, at the time, but this was um, it just happened to be that day. And uh, so they're they're in the French countryside. And uh, they they get this call to volunteer, and um, they then are kind of following whoever it was that that had gotten them through the trenches, and then into uh, the 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 general's quarters, if you will, which is really just a hole in the ground, <laughs> literally. And uh, yeah, so they they get their kind of a, a quick briefing from uh, General Aaron Moore, uh, Admiral ba- Admiral Akbar. Who says, "Hey, this is a trap." Uh, you know, we we thought we were on the line, and up until a couple days ago, we actually were. But intelligence now, and they presumably got this from uh, from flyovers, is that the Germans have pulled back from their line, and uh, which we kind of knew that that they were that they were pulling back, and in fact, we have. Uh, we, we do have an army group that's kind of been chasing them. We thought that they were in retreat, but it seems that they've really just pulled back to a more, uh, fortified position. Um, and, and you made a note in here about the Hindenburg line, Tom, could you talk about that? Yeah. So what's depicted here The the, I should say broadly, this isn't strictly a true story and it's not marketed that way. Mendez has has said in interviews that this kind of grew from a story he recalls his grandfather telling. His grandfather is credited and and the movie's dedicated to him at the end of the at the start of the credits. But he fully acknowledges, look, this is something that stuck with me as a kid and and you know obviously we expanded on it quite a bit. The Hindenburg line that is sort of vaguely referenced here, not by name, is a real thing. It's a German defensive position that was built over the winter from uh, the winter that immediately preceded this, so 1916 going into 17. Um, so it's a real thing. It was it was uh, built up originally as a contingency position because uh, they knew that there would be a spring Allied offensive, and uh, the, the whole purpose was to to be able to um, drop back to this and and uh, make use of it as a counter to the. Uh, the allied push that they knew was was coming so it's i would say this is like a lot of the movies that we cover it's grounded in i would say the tent poles of reality and in, in a real story but 
certainly the, the main characters, Blake and Schofield and uh, some of these other folks are, are all fake. Sure. So uh, it kind of as a parting gift, uh, they're handed a letter. And the, these are the actual, this letter is the actual orders from the general to uh, the, 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 the colonel, uh, Colonel McKenzie, who they're actually tasked to go find. Um, they're given a map and a compass and some rations and uh, uh, so, some, some flashlights, or as they call torches. Um, and, and that was pretty much it. So then they're sent on their way. They're given some instructions that, hey, here's how you're going to access the place where you're going to go. You know, basically go to the end of this trench. Um, and actually for the production of the movie, they had dug almost a mile of trench work just for filming the movie, um, which is pretty incredible. That's that's a lot of earth moving Yeah, to do this. Well, interestingly, when they get there, <laughs> it's not like some of these movies you see where they they get some massive supply load out and they're they're uh, stocking up and they're just armed to the teeth as they're going. Yeah. Two things stood out to me in that scene. The the first is that they get handed grenades, and that's sort of oh, a yes. yep. a really unique thing. They're like, "Holy cow! Like this must be dangerous." If we're getting if they're sparing hand grenades for us, they yeah. must be really sending us into the shit, so to speak. But the other thing is that the general is issuing these orders on paper that he knows. And this is sort of a theme that goes throughout uh, that we'll talk about. But Colonel McKenzie needs this in writing from the general. Mm -hmm. It's not enough that two lance corporals can come up and just tell him, hey, General Aaron Moore has ordered you to do X. On some level, like Aaron Moore knows that it's going to take his written word to make this happen. Right. And, uh, yeah, and, and that gets, that gets reflected later on, uh, in, in, in the film also, as you said. So they, they get to the point where they have to go to, of course, they were seeking out a major, I think, and the major died, uh, in, in the, what we kind of is indicated to be the last German offensive before their withdrawal. And so, uh, there's a, a lieutenant who is fairly inebriated, uh, who is uh, kind of in in charge of of that group out there? It was medicinal yeah. alcohol. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So he he then gives them instructions. First of all, he's incredulous about this whole thing. He's like, "They're sending you to yeah, no, no one expects you to survive. Uh, you really want to go? You really want to do this? Okay, good luck." Um, so if you're going to go, and I, I believe the the quote that he gave them was, you know, basically, okay, you're, you're going to go up out of the trench here, uh, go past the two fat horses, and then take a right at the bowing gentleman. <laughs> uh, which, of course, like, you're thinking, all right, we'll, we'll see what this is about. And, and, of course, that kind of gets uncovered in the next few minutes. But, obviously, there's a huge sense of danger with this. And no one there is completely convinced that the Germans actually had withdrawn. Uh, at least not from that position. They're, you know, they're basically saying, you come up out of this trench, you stick your head up. Tom, we've probably either all seen or read all quiet on the re- on the Western Front. We know what happens when you stick your head up out of a trench, you get it blown up. And so that's pretty much what's kind of expected. I mean, I mean, and even these two guys, these two Lance Corporals, like they're on the ladder looking at each other like, okay, you know, last final gut check, do we really believe that there are no Germans out there? Because yeah. we, we, this could be it. This could be just as soon as we stand up, we're, we're done. 
Yeah, and that's where I think the the movie worked best for me is these moments where they have really limited information and it's fed. I guess their fears are reinforced by what they're experiencing. So you've got this lieutenant that is basically like, well, it's been nice briefly knowing you. And I love the moment where he gives him a flare gun. And he oh, yes. said, and he's not like, well, you know, good luck to you or anything. He's like, I really hate giving these up to the Jerry's. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to get this back. Like, do your bet, like throw it back or something. Yeah. <laughs> Make if, some if, comment like that. If, if you're going to die, throw it behind you before you get killed. Yeah, exactly. And so, but, but there's this moment, you don't get this, this shot where it's like dramatic music and you're looking over no man's land to make the audience go like, Oh, oh my God, it's so, so bad there. You don't see anything. You're the shot is tightly focused, uh, right on the, the two Lance corporals. And I think that, that really worked for me. And, uh, you know, all that's running through their mind and yours is what this lieutenant has said. Cause I think he said they took artillery fire and, and lost folks like within the last 72 hours. So this is, yeah. if there's been a retreat, it's, it's happened really, really recently. Uh, the other thing is you talk about like a lack of communication and information flow, uh, you know, just within the, uh, the British ranks, you've got, General Aaron Moore, who's who still thinks that this particular major, who's only a few hundred yards away or should be, st- is still, still living. And yeah. then they get down, and this lieutenant's like, "Nah, he's been dead for like a day or two now." <laughs> like, yeah, I'm in charge. And on yeah. that end of the trench, they're like, "Well, yeah, this is old news by now. That the the LT's in charge, so go see him." Yep. But you know, the headshed, so to speak, has no idea, and it's not like they're separated by this massive distance. No, no, and 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 that's incredible. And and you even see as they're going through the trenches, there's all these communication wires that are strung up on on the top of of the uh, the trenches. And there's even some men who are repairing them and such. Which you have to imagine. I mean, the 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 trench warfare most notably was was known for being a very static thing. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot of movement. But when they did move, they had to rebuild all that infrastructure. But these guys had clearly been dug in for a while. And, uh, yeah, to not know that one of your command staff, like you said, you know, a hundred yards away, 200 yards away had been dead for a couple of days. is is kind of amazing. Um, so these, these guys go up, they, they, they go up and over, they kind of belly crawl for a little bit. And then you see kind of as time goes on through this, they get more and more confident. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, they kind of go from, from belly crawling to kind of crouched moving around to like just fully standing up and kind of, <laughs> you know, jogging through things. Um, but they're encountering a lot of, of obviously death and destruction and everything is just mud and brown and, uh, there's barbed wire fences, uh, which, which actually, um, uh, Schofeld, uh, actually gets injured by, which, which I, I kind of laughed a little bit. I mean, I... I grew up on a farm and I'm, I'm back on this farm to, to put your, to actually get a barb from barbed wire into your hand like that. Like you have to truly grab a hold of that and squeeze hard. <laughs> Just, it's not razor wire folks. I mean, it's, it's pointy to the point of, Oh, ow, that stuck me a little bit. Not a, Oh my gosh, my hand's bleeding kind of thing. Um, but then that was first further exacerbated when he stuck that hand into, uh, the goo of a rotting soldier, uh, what was 
a soldier. And, uh, you know, of course, that's going to bring about a ton of infection and he's, he's going to die anyway. I thought so. that. So that was one one bone that I had to pick was that the. I saw those two moments. I mean, they, they took time to focus on both of those. And when he puts his hand accidentally in that uh, that body, he mm-hmm. looks over at Blake and like the sense that I got in that moment was like, this is a death sentence for you. Like you, you realize what this means mm-hmm. and the clock is now ticking for you. And, and then you, the, kind of, cause before he bandages his hand ever, he's putting the hand back down in mud and all this stuff. Oh um, yeah. And they never really go back to that at all. No. And so I, that was just one, kind of minor thing but a loose strap hanger where i had my own expectation based on how they shot it and i'm like oh not that i wanted to see him die horribly from an inf- <laughs> like a hand <laughs> no no but still, I, you know i thought they might show like later on like he removes the bandage and it's clearly getting bad but he's got to drive on and and keep going with it but yeah. unfortunately we didn't get anything like that no no maybe he's got a really strong immune system that's all maybe maybe yeah <laughs> yeah He's 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 good. So they do go past the. Uh, well, actually, it was only one fat horse. Uh, the other one was was well on its way to decomposition, or or, or in the midst of decomposition. Um, and, and by fat horse, it was dead and, and bloated. Uh, and then the the I, I love the bowing gentleman um, was a dead soldier hung up in the barbed wire, yeah. bent just kind of bent down. So they. Yeah, you know, they're they're making their way through no man's land. Uh there's a couple of planes that fly overhead, so these guys kind of jump into a into a crater so they're not seen. Uh but as it turns out, they're British planes, and there's a little bit of foreshadowing here because we see those planes later on. But you just have, like I said, mud and craters and barbed wire and bodies and shells, uh, empty shell casings and all that kind of stuff just all over the place. Um up until they make their way actually to what formerly was German-held territory. Um, Tom, you want to talk about kind of their exploration at this point? Yeah, I, so the the watching this stuff play out on screen and seeing the stuff that had been described to them in like the horrific detail, uh, I, I thought was really really good. I mean, it can it, you hear about no man's land? If you don't know much about World War One, you've probably heard the term no man's land. Um, but what they don't really explore, which you, you haven't seen a lot of, is you know what the German lines look like. And so clearly, the as they enter the the German lines, one, I think that the their sense of surprise that this is just a ghost town is palpable. But the Germans had a much better existence. I mean, I I, I say that in like the tiniest of degrees, like. Their mud was a little bit better dug and more structured. <laughs> but I love as they're they're just like exploring this ghost town effectively that they're sort of amazed at the intricacy of the German lines and they've got uh, you know bunks that were set up oh, and yeah. just a really really extensive network that clearly the British had no idea really existed and. Uh, you're discovering all this as they do, and there's there's partly a sense of amazement, like this was all here and we had no idea, but also a sense of – I think it conveys the danger of the German army mm-hmm. that this this is no joke. I mean these aren't – this is like a uh, – because you never see a German until the 
the plane crash scene, but mm-hmm. this is like this very like dangerous phantom uh, enemy that uh, that they're walking right into the middle of their territory. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely, and, and yeah, it's. I mean, it's everything from that measure of German engineering to you know, in, in the British bunkers or uh, uh, the British trenches. I mean, they were held up with some miscellaneous lumber here and there, and in a lot of cases, falling in and mud and everything everywhere. The the uh, the German trenches. It actually looked like they were to an extent. Some of it was concrete. Uh, that that was on the walls holding this stuff up. I mean, it was mm-hmm. they, it was it was it was cleaner. It was uh, certainly just appeared to be much more fortified, and um, I mean, it also brings about the reality that they had a much more direct uh, supply line than the British did. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, they they definitely took advantage of that. When it builds to this moment where they they're in this sort of storeroom, I guess you could say, with these bags hanging around and these massive rats going around. I mean, these things are like cat size <laughs> rats. Yeah, yeah. I think they make a comment like even their rats are bigger. Yes. <laughs> <than Yeah. all>. <laughs> <laughs> but their first their their first kind of search is for food. Like let's see if they left something behind that we can take and they find that can of dog food. I was half yeah. expecting them to just crack it open and oh, so was I. wolf down some Alpo right there. Yeah. <laughs> Considering these guys like had been saying how hungry they were, but then they also did have rations that they were given. Yeah, I think the only time you see him really eat that I can remember is splitting that small piece of bread or whatever it was uh, at the start of the mission. But yeah, they start this and it sort of quickly, quickly, quickly pivots to this sense of dread when uh, Schofield realizes there's a tripwire leading out the exit and they freeze. Mm Mm-hmm. But then you've got this rat seriously like dangling on this bag from the ceiling and he drops down and I I will fully admit this. I jumped a little bit when the the explosion went off. I mean, I figured something like that would happen, but the timing caught me off guard. Yep. And you get this chain sequence of events that it's not enough that they have this, uh, have this booby trap go off and nearly get killed but it starts to bring down the entire network uh, yeah. the entire trench network that they're in and yeah, so all of a sudden they can't re- they got to get the hell out of there yep and so Schofield gets uh gets buried and and Blake pulls him out and and from all the 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 dust i imagine a lot of the rock there is like limestone which is tends to be it, it can turn the powder pretty quickly and easily uh, and and also has it's it's uh, I believe partially acidic, uh, so getting that into his eyes, like he couldn't see for a lot of this, and so he's like just grabbing a hold of of you know Blake's pack as Blake is running through these tunnels, and the tunnels are collapsing. Um, you know when you consider that a lot of these uh, these bunkers are are held up by timbers. And then, you know, you lose a set of timbers. Well, then that's more pressure on the other ones. And then, so, yeah, you just get this huge chain reaction. And, and th- this was actually a really good scene. Um, and the camera work was fantastic and the effects and everything. Because, like, you felt like, oh, my God, these guys are going to get buried alive. Oh, yeah. And uh, and they're running through this. They actually have to jump over a, a small mine shaft. Uh, and then they finally see some some daylight and, and they get out there. And then you kind of have the first interaction just between these two guys about uh 
how freaking ridiculous this whole thing is. Um, Schofeld is pissed off at Blake. He's like, why did you have to pick me? Um, and Blake is saying, I, I didn't know what it was going to be. I thought maybe it was a food run or something like that, that, you know, hey, we could have benefited from. How did I know that we were going to be making a trip through no man's land? He he hadn't learned the first lesson of military service, which is don't volunteer Never for volunteer. anything. <laughs> <laughs> Being voluntold, that's a different story. But That's right. Don't volunteer. You can do your duty, but don't raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, Schofeld's getting uh, cleaned up. He actually goes, like, one of the things that concerned me, like, he dumps his entire canteen into his eyes, and then Blake hands him his canteen, yeah. and he goes, I'm like, okay, these guys have no water now. I mean, granted, it's supposed to be a short mission, but I've seen Blackhawk down, too. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe these guys hadn't? I don't know. Um, oh, also, by the way, and as soon as my wife mentioned this, I said, oh, my God, you're, you're totally right. Uh, th- this whole journey is um, Frodo and Samwise, by the way. That's that. I didn't think of that. That's it. Totally. Even right to on. the bread, even with the freaking bread. <laughs> it's this is Frodo and Samwise. But um, with boots <laughs> with boots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, and so then as they're kind of making their way out of this area, they see all the German artillery, which the Germans sabotaged, so it couldn't be used against them. But I was amazed by the thousands upon thousands of of spent shell casings from the artillery, just piles of them everywhere. Yeah, that was a really powerful, like, visual storytelling moment. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. Like, you know, chin deep in... In these rounds that the Germans had been throwing, you think each one of those rounds, uh, you know, is really devastating and uh, can wreak a lot of havoc. And that's what they've been facing this entire time. Yeah. And that really underscores, I mean, you know, we we talked about the German trenches and their bunkers and, and all that other stuff. And this just further underscores the how in the world did the British like endure any of this? Because they were just getting the living snot uh, basically bombed out of them by this artillery. I just absolutely incredible. Um, so yeah, that, that was a, a, a great visual. So when they moved through this, th- there was like this really remarkable, like almost a, a wizard of Oz, uh, kind of transformation, you know, at that point when wizard of Oz trans, uh, tr- goes from black and white to color, like the whole landscape mm-hmm. through no man's land and the trenches and all that was like I said, just, just brown and mud and dirt everywhere. And then all of a sudden they're in green pastures and yeah. everything, everything's beautiful. The sky is blue. Like, I, I mean, even when they were going through the trenches in no man's land, the, 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 everything was like overcast and just, just blah. And then as soon as they emerge from there, the sky is blue, the grass is green, everything is fantastic. To the point where you get this additional peek into Blake's character where where he kind of reveals that he grew up, his family owned an orchard, and all of a sudden he has this knowledge about the cherry uh, trees. The cherry trees and whatnot, and they're they're discussed. And it's just this beautiful uh, kind of juxtaposition with uh, the the white and green there, and Showfield's like, so up to this point in the mission, Blake has been this like know nothing, 
just completely green behind the the ears private Frodo. that he's had to leave yeah that he's been Frodo and then <laughs> you know Frodo knows a couple things yeah 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 it's pretty amazing so they go through these nice rolling hills and all that uh, and then they encounter this this basically old bombed out farm uh, there's a house and a, and a barn there and, and, and some other um, some other outbuilding. Well, one thing one thing that stood out to me before they reached that building, though, uh, that that I really enjoyed is this discussion that they have uh, about Schofield's prior service. That it's oh, clear that yeah, yeah. That his he, medal. Yeah, that he sir. I can't remember the battle if they name it or whatnot, but Schofield survived another battle mm-hmm. that Blake obviously hasn't experienced and got a medal for valor during mm-hmm. it. And uh, Schofield says he traded it to a uh, a French officer for I think a bottle of wine. Bottle of wine, yep. Uh, and Blake just cannot wrap his head around this. No, no, it was that was unfathomable to him. He's like, well, even if you wouldn't want it, your family would want that. And and Schofield's like, I really don't care. Couldn't care less. Yeah, when it's this moment where. I think it really puts a fine point on Blake's inexperience where he, he still has this sort of romantic view of war. Mm-hmm. Like he's seen some, some crummy stuff, at least in, in this mission, but he hasn't really tasted uh, some of the horror behind it. And Schofield doesn't have to, to say it, but I think part of the reason, I mean, that's a, that ribbon was a tangible memory of probably the hell that he went through in that battle and he, you know, a he, I think part of that mental approach to it is, you know, I'm not deserving of this. Like, why did I live? And and some of my friends died in this, and I shouldn't get a uh, a medal for that. But also, it's this like physical reminder of it. And why would you want that hanging around? Yeah, yeah. And so he they, clearly doesn't want to get into a lot of detail about it. No. No, he really doesn't want to talk about it, and he just kind of keeps deflecting. Like, I, I gave it away. It's no big deal. Let's let's just, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, it, it, that's an interesting conversation, and it does kind of get to both their experience and their attitudes of, 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 about this um, and about the war and the situation that they're in and such. Uh, so, yeah, they, they encounter this farmhouse, and, of course, fundamentally, they, they have to clear it. They don't know if it's occupied or not. So, you know, one goes around front, one goes around back. Yep, no one's around. And they're just kind of basically looking through things to see if there's anything of value, some food or whatnot uh, that they could get. And um, uh, Blake is is in the farmhouse at, at this point, and Schofield is is in basically what the barn was and says, oh, hey, look, there's, there's, there's one living thing. There's a, a living cow. <laughs> That was there. I mean, even on the other side of the house, going into the house, there was a dead dog. Um, this is the first living thing that we've seen, um, aside from other soldiers. And uh, and it's kind of remarkable because not too much further in the movie, you see a field of dead cows. Somehow, this one particular cow survived. And in the barn, he finds a bucket of what seems to be potentially fresh-ish milk. Mm-hmm. So truly, someone was there not too long ago, uh, milked that cow, and now they're no longer there. But but the, the, the cow is. 
and uh, so then the 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 you you hear the sound of, of of airplanes and the camera pans up and you see what may have very well been the two British planes that these guys saw earlier uh, in a dogfight with a German plane and they win the dogfight German plane gets shot down you think it's going to crash behind this little knoll that's ahead of them and no surprise the pilot kind of pulls up a little bit to save that nose dive crash and uh kind of you know skims over the, the the rolling hill crashes right into the barn where these guys were they barely managed to get to get away from there uh the pilot's still alive they drag the pilot out but the the, the pilot's injured and uh Blake actually starts to render aid to uh-huh. to the soldier so this is also kind of a reflection of of Blake's attitude on war his perspective on war um He's trying to do morally the right thing. Uh, but obviously we know that in the midst of war, you have to have some moral flexibility. And this is the moment I feel like it is a a literal moment where the war becomes real to Blake. Yeah. Uh, and and it's it's amazing. Like in this scene, the planes are way up high, and they're sort of watching it. And and it's like Blake's entire experience with this war up to this point encapsulated. The war's far off. Like oh man, that that seems crazy. Those those planes, are, and then bam, it's right up on him. And you've got this burning plane and an enemy, a living enemy that's that's right in front of you. And Schofield wants to kill him. Yep. Wants to, I don't think Schofield he would have left him in the in burning cockpit. Uh, but they pull him out, and then he wants to kill him, and uh, you know he ends up doing what Blake wants and goes to get water. And you hear, have this immediate tragic turn that caught me completely off guard, where the German pilot stabs Blake mm-hmm. uh, pretty suddenly, yeah. and Schofield you know kills him, uh, and then it's it's pretty clear that this is the end of Blake's journey, and it's the I my my experience that was on par with the scene where I'm trying to remember the, the soldier's name, the character's name in saving private Ryan. But at the, in the final battle, uh, the German soldier and the Jewish American soldier like wrestling around and he gets, uh, uh, killed with his own knife. Uh, it's just like this slow excruciating moment. Like that was, I had that same sort of feeling of dread and angst watching Blake sort of slowly pass away there. Yeah. And, and it was kind of a long death scene. Blake had a lot to say uh, through this. And at one point, like loses, he kind of gets a, you know, some measure of, 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 you know, displacement or dementia. Cause now he, you know, you can tell he's not getting enough oxygen to his brain. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what happened mm-hmm. all of a sudden. Oh, am I dying? Oh yeah, I am. Um, and you really see the bloods just start to come out of his gut and you're like, yeah, this is, this is going to happen pretty yeah. soon. Um, and so as, uh, Schofield's trying to basically just move his body somewhere, suddenly there's a couple of British sol- soldiers that, that show up. Uh, and as it turns out, this was a, a small convoy, uh, just simply moving soldiers from point A to point B. They help him out. And uh, he talks to the the commander of, of, of this particular movement uh, who says, yeah, you know, you have an important mission. Jump in the truck. We'll take you as far as we can. 
and um, you know, there's a thing where they have where they get stuck in mud. There's a thing where they have to move a tree. There's there's some other stuff going on. Um, there you do see a, a, some interesting camaraderie and some interactions, uh, kind of in, in 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 the back of this personnel carrier, um, particularly with a, a, a Sikh soldier. Uh, that's, that's back there. There were a, a handful of them mixed in with the, with the British soldiers. Um, and the, 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 the Sikhs are, I mean, renowned for being absolutely incredible warriors and gave a lot of support, uh, to, to the British army, uh, particularly during world war one. Not necessarily always voluntarily either. They, I mean, they fought and they True. fought hard and they fought honorably, but I, you know, they weren't necessarily given a, a huge choice in joining the war. But yeah, I thought it was this interesting sort of camaraderie because so far you just have these, it, it's been nothing but uh, characters that all look the same. And then, uh, you know, yeah. the Sikh sort of plays White this. British boys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it, but then the Sikh plays this sort of important role in, in uh, helping him. And I also thought this is sort of the moment where you see Schofield change his mentality because up to this point his whole attitude has been like why me why am i in the middle of this this is this is insane we're going to die mm-hmm. uh what what's the point of all this I, you know i get that it's a surprise attack but isn't there someone else or some other way that this can be accomplished and then now in the in the wake of Blake's death he sort of takes on this mantle of responsibility and almost takes Blake's attitude about the mission like it's got to get done you know, I, I, he's yeah. got this sense of duty, if not to Blake and 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 trying to save his brother, uh, where he could not save Blake, but you know, to the m- entire mission, the country itself. And that's a good point. I mean, Schofield actually needs to effectively accept this mission as his own, and we kind of see that happen during Blake's death. Um. And, and, and to the point that once Blake does finally die, you know, Schofield goes through his pockets and grabs the map, which is just soaked in blood. And so that's no good to him. Um, but he manages to grab a couple of other things. And, and uh, but yeah, he, 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 you do see that. That's a good point, Tom. You, you actually have to, you see him go through this process of, all right, I, I, I got a man up. I, I have to do this now. I have to do this mission. And which is, is, you know, partly there's a duty there, but I think there's also kind of that altruistic, uh, perspective yeah. that, that Blake had that Schofield needs. Yeah. To I mean, he literally like the truck gets stuck in the mud and he immediately hops down. He's like, no, I've got to get there. Like the clock is ticking and he's like straight. I thought he was going to throw his back out and have to go the rest of the way in a, like a wheelbarrow or something. Uh, he's <laughs> literally trying along. to hulk this thing out of the mud <laughs> and he inspires yeah. the other, the other soldiers to hop down and, and give a hand to it. So it's, uh, I, I thought that was a really good scene, uh, but yeah. then they run out of, yeah, and, the and, and it shows his dedication. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you're going to have that, uh, that sound effect from the, is it the $6 million man where it's like the, <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> that's the truck out of the mud but then the eventually the trucks can't go any further in terms of taking him toward his objective uh they get to this small village uh even deeper in german territory and you've got uh the, the bridges are bombed out or destroyed and uh the trucks can't go any further in that direction so once again Schofield has to to go it alone and leave the group of soldiers and the- yeah, so 
he uh, uh, one of the destroyed bridges there, which is a pretty small bridge. I don't even know that was that it could have taken a vehicle or maybe. I mean, I, I know vehicles were had a much more narrow wheelbase then, um, but it almost looked like a pedestrian bridge type of thing. So it, as he's kind of making his way through there and trying to balance and and and, and make it make his way over this canal, um, he starts starts to get shot at, and is very lucky. <laughs> I mean, this sniper gets off like what five, six, seven shots yeah. at him, and 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 of course, you know, some of the shots are like literally pinging off the metal that he's holding <laughs> onto, um, and then uh, you know until he he actually crosses over, and then you know now he's kind of behind the wall of of the canal, and he has to make his way up, um, and they exchange some fire, and he clearly either gets the sniper to keep his head down, or or injures him, or maybe kills him at this point. You don't know. He then goes into the building, goes upstairs, opens the door, blam, blam, Schofield shot, kills the guy, but the guy gets a shot off, which you kind of don't know at that point if Schofield got hit or not, or maybe he got hit in the helmet and it ricocheted off. I'm not exactly sure what happened there, but either way, it was enough to make him essentially jump backwards um, and jumping backwards put him down the stairs. And so he did hit the back of his head on the, on the landing of the stairs and then everything goes black. And then hours later he wakes up and uh, he's lost a lot of time. I mean, part of this movie also is a race against time. And, and I don't know that we necessarily made that clear up front uh, in our discussion here, because the next morning at dawn is when this British regiment is supposed to, uh, is supposed to attack. And so there's there's a very certain race against time that they're trying to that that they're trying to cover, and they they need to cover a lot of ground uh, getting from point A to to point B before this happens. Yeah, and I th- that was a palpable moment where he wakes up, and you're like, oh, it's dark, and you you've wasted a bunch of time. Well, not wasted, but a bunch of time has gone by. I thought they were going to reveal that was another sort of minor issue. I guess I had was. That was one of those moments where you're like, oh, not only is your hand messed up and you got blown up by a tripwire, but uh, now you've taken a shot somewhere. And so you're, uh, you know, is he even going to be able to complete this mission? They didn't really even, uh, they never come back to that. I I really thought he kept pulling out that tin uh, that, that carried some documents. And I thought there was going to be a moment where, cause he had put some documents from Blake in there for safekeeping. He was maybe going to have, mm-hmm. yeah, pull it out and the bullets lodged in that, uh, sort of poignantly, but you never get anything. So who knows like what happened there? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the, I think that sense of time and the sand running out of the hourglass was, was done well across the, the whole spectrum. But now he's, he's in a town where, Clearly, Germans are still occupying some level, and he's got mm-hmm. very little time, a matter of a few hours at this point. So this is a point where I was confused by a couple of things. Um, as you mentioned, the Germans had some occupation here, which was kind of a surprise to me, because from what at least the, the premise of the story that we had was that the Germans had pulled back to this line which you identified as the Hindenburg line. This area was supposed to be the area that they had evacuated. Um, So I found it interesting that there were enough 
still British stragglers there. The other side of this is that he, as he's making his way through this, uh, this, this village, he ends up uh, encountering when he kind of gets in hiding, he was being chased down by a German soldier. There's a, a, a young lady there who he asks, he asks her where he is and uh, my French Tom isn't up to par. So I'm going to have you uh, say the, the name of this, of this village. And this is the village that they kept citing through the movie saying, okay, we have to get there. And then we're going to go this direction to this wooded area. And that's where the, the that's, that's where our forces are. Well, you, you can, you'll be able to tell that I am a, a native French speaker by my excellent pronunciation yes, here, but it's yeah. a Cousemin. So it looks like, uh, Acoust dash Saint that was sexy. dash dash that was sexy, mine M E I N, uh, but you know it's it's difficult for for folks like me that are fluent like that to break it down. <laughs> I know it may sound like I have bread stuffed in my mouth and I'm just trying to say something. But it is a real town in, or a real village in France, and and was one that um, had gotten similarly destroyed during the course of the war. So that's what's depicted here. Uh, but he has this this moment where he sort of spends a little bit of time with this woman and a baby who's not her own. Uh, she sort of, I guess, found this baby. Um, I this scene wasn't all that effective for me. I, like it tugged at my heartstrings, and as a parent, I had this sense of dread. As this woman clearly has not much to feed this baby with, she can't give it real food. She needs milk, and basically, he gives her this canteen. That's the only the only thing she'll be able to feed this baby, um, and but I I don't know I thought it 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 disrupted the flow of the movie a little bit for me I, it didn't really advance stuff other than to to sort of highlight um, Schofield's compassion balanced against his dedication for this yeah uh, for this mission because certainly that was an out he could have stayed and helped and and whatnot and he didn't. But yeah, and and I was going to point that out that that this is it's really it was a moment of 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 compassion um, that was demonstrated and but yeah, aside from that, I mean, it was more or less a plot device for him to right. now know where he was. But they could have done that with a road sign. But so I I mean, again, I was still very confused that oh, suddenly he's there, like the convoy that he was with. You would have thought that. The, the commander of that convoy would have said, hey, the village you're going to, right across that canal. It's right there. Like, I can throw a stone, and it's... Right, and there. a commander who is clearly... Because he this was not an insignificant character. Uh, somebody that's played... I, I forget the actor's name. He's been in a bunch of stuff. But somebody who's clearly clearly understands the significance of the mission, clearly has a sense of, of the broader yeah. scope of things, and <clears throat> in fact makes the comment... Hey, when you talk to Colonel McKenzie, have witnesses there with you. Uh, just, just trust me on mm-hmm. that. Oh yeah. So I, I totally get yep. where you're coming. Why wouldn't he have enough knowledge to say, okay, here's the best option for you? Yeah. So th- th- this this whole thing here was was kind of a big plot hole for me that suddenly he's in this village. Um, th- that just like I don't know. It, it it seemed a little too convenient, and and at this point we're in the third act, and it almost seemed like it was kind of a rushed thing, like hey we we need to wrap up this movie quick. Um, let's just yeah let's just put him here, 
let's just right. put him here. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so he does, uh, uh, he, he, as you said, he's, he's kind of drawn a little bit to, to further helping out, uh, this young lady and, and, and the baby, uh, but you know, decides, Hey, I got to press on. And there was actually another thing there. Like he recognizes the urgency that he has to get there. Yeah. He's kicking around there and talking to this girl. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, they're, they're going to jump in bed together or something like this dude's wasting a lot of time. <laughs> like he has to tick tock. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, hey, the clock's ticking here, brother. Let's, let's move. Let's move. Um, so he, he does finally end up, uh, leaving where she was staying. Uh, and he's kind of, you know, he ends up going through the streets and he's dodging gunfire. Uh, and, and there's flares that are constantly going up and illuminating the place. And as illuminations going up, people are taking pot shots at him. Uh, and then gets into this little building where there was clearly at least one soldier that was drunk off his ass. <laughs> The guy who he actually fought hand to hand, I don't know that he was, but yeah, this was another one of those moments kind of like back on Saving Private Ryan where, you know, you truly have two guys who are just grappling hand to hand combat. There's a knife involved and it's like, oh shit, something's going to happen and it's dark and you as a viewer really can't see what's going on. Um, and then the drunk soldier walks back in after puking and he's like, ah, Hey, you know, Bob, I've, I've, I'm going to hear, I found another bottle. And like, he's just doing his own thing over there. And then he's like, it's, it's something, Bob, Bob, Hey, what's, what's, or maybe Fritz. I don't know. Fritz, what's, what's, <laughs> what's going on over there? And then kind of, you know, staggers over and then realizes Fritz, oh, Fritz is hey, dead. <laughs> Fritz is dead. You just killed Fritz, I think. Who are you? Uh, and then, yeah, and then he doesn't even bother with the drunk guy. He just runs. He doesn't pick up his rifle. Doesn't. Yeah. Get, he just runs. And I'm like, dude, you left your gun. <laughs> that's that's all. That was the only thing I'm thinking. Like, you're an idiot. You're you're clearly in enemy territory, which wasn't supposed to be enemy territory, but you're in enemy territory, and you left your rifle behind. So the woman told them, yeah, basically, you know, go down Main Street, take a left, uh, and then the river's there, and you follow the river, and that's going to take you to the wooded area. As he's escaping a bunch of soldiers who are chasing him out of town, trying to kill him, really poor shots, he jumps into the river and goes for a really long time, and there's a couple of waterfalls and all sorts of other stuff, and all of a sudden it's daylight. I I don't know what happened in the river. I, a lot of food. Frodo, or no, this is... This is uh, not Frodo. This is Samwise. So suddenly Samwise finds daylight um, amidst a a dam of bodies. That was gross. Yeah, he's not having good luck with his, uh, in terms of physical contact with corpses. (laughs) (laughs) As time goes on, I'm making more and more fun of this film. I really shouldn't be. (laughs) I I almost feel bad. Um, All right. What happens next? I've been ranting for a while. Well, he ends up. Getting out and and just by happenstance, he comes upon the exact battalion he's been looking for, or at least a, he doesn't know that at first. But it's a group of British soldiers. There's this singing going on, and uh, it, it's this it, really surreal moment. I almost felt like it was like a hallucination, like the the entire time from when yeah. he crosses the bridge to when he gets to this point. I mean. Y- you know, in a way, it's almost like he died at some point, got shot by the sniper. And this is like his death experience. He's just dreaming all this. Um, but 
it, it's this surreal moment where he kind of kicks back and listens to this uh, song that's being sung. A pretty moment, but again, one of those where I'm like, it, it sort of cut against the the drama that the timeline is supposed to entail. Like I would have expected mm-hmm. him to be just like almost strangling and grabbing uh, British soldiers by their, their shirt collars, shaking them for information on uh, you know, where this unit is, the second battalion and, and the commanding officer and whatnot. But that's not exactly how it unfolds. It's beautiful. It's poignant. Don't get me wrong. Great song, yeah. but yeah. Great, great song. You've been singing it in the shower. I know. Version. It's like uh, toss a coin to your Witcher, except uh, World War One. <laughs> <laughs> There's, um, so, well, I, so, I mean, kind of, I guess, in defense of, of the moment of this movie, I think that, that Schofield thinks that he's too late. Because a dawn mm-hmm. raid generally means a dawn raid. You Actually, usually like minutes before dawn. Sun is clearly up, uh, and so he probably thinks he's too late. Plus, he's exhausted out of his mind, or he thinks it's he's beaten it and he's got a small buffer because he does find out. No, no I don't. He think does he find out that. that it's the second wave, no. and he starts to freak out at that moment, right? And so, at, at, at that point, when he does, he's you know running again through the trenches. We're we're, we're back to trenches, and he keeps asking everybody for the colonel. He's grabbing like anyone, you know, who has more than one stripe on his on his shoulder. Did do you know where the colonel is? Do you know where the colonel is? And he sold everything from he's down there to piss off. He finally does find the colonel, and like you think through this this whole like this last run of his. Oh oh, the last run. So he's he's in the trenches, and you're like, I mean, the the, the officers are like telling these guys. There's going to be a whistle blast, and you're going to go up and over, and this is going to happen. Like they're yeah. counting down, like this is going to happen any moment. And Schofield realizes that the the uh, the trench is just too full of men. He simply can't get from where he is to where he has to go. There's too many people in there. It's too crowded. So what do you do? <laughs> get up out of the trench again. <laughs> Very clearly. Again, dude has not read All Quiet on the Western Front or seen the movie, clearly. He jumps up out of the trench and then the whistle blows. And now all the people who he was trying to avoid in the (laughs) trench are now outside the trench. And he like ends up colliding with like four or five of them and then says, well, shit, the trench is clear. I might as well go back in the trench. So he goes back in the trench. He finds the colonel. Uh, and then he and the Colonel have an exchange. Now this is Benedict Cumberbatch. And again, probably his shortest, uh, uh, role in, in film history. What's, what's the, the essence of their exchange? (laughs) Thank you. Piss off. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. That's how it starts. I was surprised that there wasn't more of a, a back and forth. I mean, I think that the weight of the moment is clearly on Mackenzie and he's, his forces are mid stride in this attack. And so he's got to make a quick decision. So that, that drives it. Uh, but you, I guess you do get a little bit of pushback where they his aides are ready to throw him out of, of this little bunker. He almost doesn't get in there in the first place. Um, but he pretty quickly makes the decision to call off the attack and then gives sort of a little, uh, war theory to, 
Schofield says has the comment about uh, attrition being, you know, the 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 thing that's going to end this war that it's just going to be last man standing as both sides slug it out. That, in other words, this is mm-hmm. he's made this decision, but it's going to have little impact one way or the other on the war, uh, good or bad. So he's he's got this sort of cold, calculating view toward the the whole exercise. And then he tells him to piss off. <laughs> yeah. And, and he actually quite literally, literally does. Are, are, yeah. are you done here, Lance Corporal? You can piss off now. Um, yeah. I, I mean, clearly the, the, the Colonel has been uh, around the block a few times with this and he's, he's very frustrated with command as I think most majors and colonels usually end up being. I, uh, never, uh, ever. Never. <laughs> As major, I'm they sure you could comment on that. Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> but it, you know the 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 whole aspect, and and it, it tends to happen in most organizations where people who are just below the senior leadership feel that the the top leaders either you know basically they don't appreciate uh, all everything that's going on, or they don't know all the facts or whatever, and they might think because of one little nugget that we should have a big change. And, you know, the, the Colonel kind of goes on into this, uh, in, in, into this bit of a, of a thing like, okay, we, we have good conditions here for this attack and they're telling me to, to pull off, but then we're going to get orders to attack in the middle of a, you know, rainy, foggy day where we can't see anything. And, you know, so he's just, he's very, uh, he's he's very jaded with 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 the whole thing, but he does agree to call off the attack partially too late. I mean, they have to call back the first wave, uh, and then that's where you see a you know epic crap ton of wounded soldiers coming back back to the aid station, which is where um, where Schofield ends up going, looking for uh, Brother Blake, Lieutenant Blake, and he eventually does meet him. It's this moment where you're you're almost expecting him to come upon him wounded in a stretcher or somebody to say, Oh, I, I saw him get hit. But you see him sort of heroically, I guess, leading and directing the the flow of casualties into the tent. He's unscathed. Uh, and I, all I could think of when I saw him was game of Thrones. That's going to be the curse of that show and actors in it that take part in other things for years to come. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's, I, that's all I could think of initially. Uh, was it, oh, it's Stark. <laughs> but they have I, I the the <laughs> exchange between the two of them was was very yeah. effective because it's this moment for uh, the elder Blake to he's having a hard time processing what's just happened and, and weighing weighing against the fact that he knows he's got to keep moving in this moment that. He's got a lot of responsibility on his shoulders, and he can't just take a knee and and absorb all this. Uh, well, and simultaneously, he can. I think he can tell very easily that Schofield's yeah. affected by it. He can't just break down in front of him, both as an officer mm-hmm. and um, you know, somebody who's got to lend some amount of support to his friend. Yeah, and it is a very emotional and and moving moment. I think that exchange that that they have up, up to, you know, Schofield even asking permission to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to write their, his parents, uh, you know, to, to tell them about it. And, uh, and Lieutenant Blake says, yeah, you know, of course you, you were there with him. Um, 
and clearly got to know him. And, and I think, you know, oftentimes in these, in these situations, and we, we see this theme um, in, in a lot of movies, in a lot of war movies where, and, and obviously it's a reflection of reality that the person who you're with, even though you may have only spent hours or days with them, they become one of your best friends. You know very little about them, but because of the situation that you're in, that's the relationship that that you now have with them. Um, and 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 Lieutenant Blake, uh, you know, clearly understood that, and respected that, and you know, th- these two were on a mission together. You know, and and this is what happened. And, and then with with how the movie closes out, just just after this, and I, I think Tom, you 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 had some some thoughts on this um, kind of being maybe a flat ending. I'm trying to remember. Does it just sort of fade out with him sitting there? Yeah. Yep. He sits. I mean, like, the tree in, a, in a way, it comes it full circle away. because you started out with them dicking around and and hanging out by a tree, and that's how it all ends. I also think it's, th- there's no fanfare yeah. for Schofield. I mean, I, you know, it's not like Mackenzie is like, tell me about this harrowing journey that you've had in the British army and the entire Allied force. No, I think no the Lieutenant cares. cares, you know, in a way, but he doesn't have any clue <laughs> of their larger mission and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. yeah. To the colonel, it was an inconvenience. And uh, to Lieutenant mm-hmm. Blake, it was a delivery and of bad it, news. It fits in a large way right in with how Schofield viewed his own experience. I mean, this is the guy that, that traded his uh, medal for heroism, the one that he did get handed for a bottle of wine. And then here we have him with, with no recognition whatsoever. And I think in a way, he's okay with that. But Again, just like at the start, you don't get this broader shot. There's no pan out of the camera or zoom out of the camera where you see the battlefield or any real stats and statistics about things. No nope. narration. That's it. Uh, not even a, a Saving Private Ryan style moment where you not that would fit with this film where there's like a flash forward in time of him as an old man or something like that reflecting on this. It's just it just ends and closes. And I guess in a way, because this is Mendez putting on screen, what was a story to him from his grandfather? I, you know, in a way that's, that's sort of how a story would end like that, I guess. So it, it, it fits. I doesn't mean I was satisfied by it though. Yeah. I, I I was actually totally okay with it because it, it wasn't, it actually wasn't about the war. It was about these two guys and, I, I think just simply that reflection on Schofield and you know, the, the camera always stayed on, on them and for the camera to close on them, I, I thought was appropriate. And he was, again, he was exhausted. I, your, your point about the, the metal was interesting because I hadn't considered that he probably exhibited more bravery more basically deserving circumstances in this situation for what he did um and of course we don't know if he would or would not receive a medal after this but it was certainly more deserved you know potentially in this situation than it was in the other situation um that that he was in so yeah i i i was okay with it 
um, the, the interesting part though was because the third act largely fell so flat on me for the very final moment, the closing moment to be what it was. It just kind of <laughs> made me like shrug my shoulders at yeah. the end. I was like, Oh, okay, it's done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think we already covered kind of the more humorous things. And I think we maybe created humor where it didn't exist or wasn't intended. Um, we talked about the military lingo thing before we recorded. There really wasn't, at least to what we can recall, there wasn't a whole lot that was out there. And it's tough because we saw this in the theater. We weren't able to really like soak this in and take notes. Yeah, I didn't want to get yelled at by folks so. around me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see, a few little bits of information. Um, the movie had apparently uh, around a $100 million budget. And uh, just for some perspective, domestic box office uh, expected close of business tomorrow, being uh, tomorrow being Martin Luther King Day, is going to be over $80 million domestic. Uh, so certainly in the U.S. market alone, they're going to uh, hit what they spent on this movie. And uh, it's also doing really well overseas. So um, they're, they're definitely getting, getting their money. I would not be surprised at all if... Uh, it gets a limited re-release, whether bef- right before or after the Oscars, mm. depending on how it does. Yeah. Yeah, because there is some time until the There's at least a month, I think, until that. And then usually there is a bump after after the awards that uh, the theaters will then increase it from – you know, at that point, maybe the weekend before, it'll be in 2,000 theaters, and then they'll bump it back up to 2,500 theaters. And then you'll see the uh, their their box office take uh, for, for that week jump up um, quite a bit, you know, when it gets even more buzz and people say, hey, I, I think I'm going to go see it. Maybe we might have discouraged <laughs> them if they listen to this episode. I don't know. Uh, th- there is a thing that Mendez did with this. Um, there's a, there's a couple of things film wise that that he did do with this. Uh, first of all, I he did do a lot of very long takes uh, with this, which is something that he also did with mm-hmm. uh, Spectre, I believe. In the, in the the cold open for for Spectre was something like a the the whole uh, uh, chase in the beginning of, of Spectre at uh, uh, Dia, de, mm-hmm. Dia de los Muertos where he's jumping across the tops of the buildings and stuff. That was one continuous, um, that was one continuous take. Interestingly enough, there were apparently a number of those in this, which you can see why a lot of it was fairly static. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot going on and the camera stuck with the guys. They didn't have to keep moving the camera around a lot. Um, but one of the things that he did do when they did need to do an edit or, or change the perspective of the camera was that they would pan the camera around, um, behind an object so they could actually do an edit as they went across that object without it being like really apparent or, or noticed. And this is something, um, a technique that actually Alfred Hitchcock, uh, started. So, um, just a, a neat little bit of, of, of film trivia there, I guess. No, I enjoyed it. I, I hope nobody takes our comments collectively to be like, this is a, a, you know, undeserving movie or not a good movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It, it's just, you know, uh, I, trying to balance yeah. the scales, I think, and be devil's advocate in, in some instances. And also, I it, this is my perspective as I watched it a single time. This is the difference between this movie and 
every single movie that you and I have covered so far, because all of the movies that we've talked about so far have been stuff that I've seen multiple times and have had a chance, even just sitting prepping for the, the episode, I sit and watch it again and I have sort of a unique experience from that standpoint. And uh, something I've, I've talked about a lot of times, a lot of those movies, if not all of them were ones that I saw uh, prior to my my own military service and then had a different perspective on it afterward this is not in that bucket so you know sure. if we re-recorded this 12 months from now and i you know happen to own it or have watched it a few more times you know i might some of these opinions might be very very different sure that's that's definitely fair so for our next episode, again, we do um, we, we are going to go back to our original plan, which is doing Beneath Hill 60. So we'll have uh, another World War One movie going on. <laughs> again, more trenches. Uh, You're going to be that's, stuck that's in a, close quarters with theme. Tim and I. <laughs> <laughs> lots of trenches. Um, yes, yes. Lots of trenches, lots of British accents, uh, lots of lieutenants and such. Uh, as it is. So uh, we did save it, even though we, we front loaded a lot of our closing bits um, in, in the episode. Now we did save. We did. I, I want to lead though with a recommendation. It's not a film that we're going to cover on dispatches. Uh, it's more of a documentary, but if you have not seen Peter Jackson's documentary, they shall not grow old. It is, it is worth hunting oh, down. Yeah. I, I don't know whether it's, I know it's not, out on like DVD, Blu-ray, 4K yet, but it keeps getting these these bite-sized releases of two or three days. It is really, really phenomenally well done. It's an experience all in its own. the the The, the entire movie is uh, footage from World War One, uh, set against stories from veterans, obviously recorded much earlier. Um, but the footage has been completely restored and colorized. I mean, it looks like it looks like it was just shot in a lot of instances, and it really, really is a a total experience that's different from anything that I've sat through. If you get a chance to see it at your theater on the big screen, that's that's amazing. But if you can hunt it down on digital or whenever it gets a, a home release, I highly recommend it. Uh, especially if you've got trenches in World War One on the mind. Uh, yeah, Peter applied. Jackson is a huge World War One buff. Um, apparently, a massive collection of World War One planes. Wow, that he has. Yeah, he's he has like a whole hangar of of biplanes and such. You can do that, with Lord of the Rings money. That's true. That's true. And these planes <laughs> like fly. Like he actually, I don't. He doesn't fly them, but uh, he has a couple of pilots that that work with him that actually do fly. He shouldn't let Harrison Ford fly any of those because no. statistically one of them is going <laughs> to crash into the ground on a golf course or something. Harrison Ford will survive. He will have saved the the whole thing from the disaster it could have been. The plane's going to be gone, though. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> so now the part you've all been waiting for, a wonderful legal disclaimer. Dispatches from the front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatch from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media unless under otherwise indicated. I say that as if we had no break whatsoever. It just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I, I actually have more of a tear from that than I did from the movie. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for joining us once again. And uh, hopefully our uh, period in between shows won't be as long as it was this time. We will catch you again later. Thank you. Thank you.